Hello again, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. Today's episode is part of a series of episodes recorded live during Oceanology in London, with a specific focus on the future of ocean technology and what that means for the marine sector. So, enjoy. Hello again. Welcome to Planet Beyond Podcasts. Today we're recording from the exhibition floor of Oceanology International 2022. Here in London, yes, we're out and about at last. And it's great to be face to face with old colleagues and meeting you. So right now, we're here to talk about the future of ocean technology. We all know that the ocean plays a crucial role in regulating climate and weather, but is also vital to the world's economy. The OECD reports that more than 90% of trade uses sea routes, making this a source of employment for millions of people. The ocean is also the stage for a growing range of new ocean-related economic activities and constant technological innovations. The ocean economy is forecast to double from $1 trillion in 2010 to $3 trillion by 2030. And we're all aware of the global move to low carbon technologies. Against this backdrop, we are joined today by the CEOs of two businesses who specialize in gathering data. Our very own CEO, Mark Heine. Hello who is passionate about sustainable and technological development, and James Ives, the CEO and founder of XOcean, which puts innovation at the heart of its work, collecting information with uncrewed surface vessels. Welcome to you both. So th thanks very much, John, and great to, great to be here with you today, Mark. Um, I think you said it at the outset, so the ocean economy set to double to three trillion by the end of this decade. Um, and ultimately, we would see that data has to be the foundation of that growth. If we're to, to be developing the ocean in a, in a sustainable and responsible way, I think the only way we can do that is by having lots of data and lots more data than we're used to today. We feel that there's technology's got a key role to play in, in enabling us to have that visibility of the ocean's health and make sure that whatever we're doing, we're doing it responsibly. Yeah, yeah, Jim, James, you're talking about the oceans and, and I think it's not only the oceans, actually the world is changing faster than ever before and, uh, and that's also visible on the technology side. So technology is, I think, uh, changing uh, exponentially so fast and, uh, and markets obviously are following. So the markets are really demanding from us uh, more data, faster data, more integrated data, and that is geodata. So it's always a component of the earth there, uh, which we can use uh, yeah, for any built environment, but also for the natural environment to protect that. And that's at the oceans, the coastlines, but it's also an onshore uh, requirement there. So the world is changing really rapidly and technology comes along very, very fast. Very good. So we've set out the why we're talking about this now, but maybe we should take a, a step back. And maybe, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what 
your respective businesses actually do? So I could kick off there. So, so XOcean, we're, we're ultimately a data company. The, the deliverable we give to our customers is, is ocean data. But we do it with a difference. So rather than sending a, a vessel out with a crew on board, we've developed an uncrewed surface vessel that allows us to go and collect that data. So what are we talking about? We're talking about a vessel that's around the size of an average car. It's a satellite control system so that we can operate hundreds of kilometers offshore. And I think crucially, really, really low emissions. So we, op we operate with about a thousandth of the carbon emissions of a conventional vessel. A thousandth? A thousandth. And I guess ultimately, you know, what, what types of data are we collecting? It's a lot of bathymetric data, so mapping of the seabed. It's a lot of sub-bottom data to understand the, the formation of the seabed. And, and really underpinning this is a lot of delivery of data to really accelerating markets, principally offshore wind, where we're seeing, what, an 8 to 10x growth over the next decade. And, and that's a market that just has an enormous appetite for data. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting uh, what James is saying. Obviously, we're, we're in a very similar area, and we have been uh, collecting data the traditional way, but also uh, more and more now in the new way, as you describe yourself. Uh, well, obviously, uh, company Fugler stands for Foundation and Ground Mechanics. Uh, that's uh, where the abbreviation comes from. I always say, once you have heard that, you never forget where, uh, yeah. what, what Fugro does. Uh, but we, we acquire uh, geodata, we analyze the geodata also in our laboratories where we take physically yeah, uh, some soil uh, samples and bring it to the laboratory. We have 35 laboratories in the world and analyze the data and, and do all sorts of tests and then advise on, uh, on that data as well, the geodata, to actually for building processes. Uh, but also for the natural environment, how to protect that, how to make sure that uh, there's no floods and so on. But we do that in various ways, also the traditional way uh, with vessels, with crew that go, goes on board vessels and then collect the information. And nowadays we're also uh, more and more into the remote and the autonomous and uh, more modular solutions as you describe yourselves. And it's quite impressive to see obviously what the X-Ocean has done uh, there over the last uh, period of time, seeing the fast growth there uh, in your businesses is really an indication that technology moves so rapidly and that people also demand from us that we move along with the world changing so rapidly. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's pick up on that word change. How has technology changed the way your companies are, are operated or are operating? Yeah, so I mean, I would say that there's a number of enabling technologies that are, that are allowing this change in how we operate. And I think one of the principal ones would be satellite data. You know, to be able to operate a vessel hundreds of kilometers offshore, collecting large volumes of data and making sure you get collecting really, really high quality data, you need to have access to the platform that is, is out there. I think, you know, we've, we've only really been operating for three years commercially, and we've actually upgraded our satellite system three times in that period. And that's just because new systems are coming online with more reliability, higher bandwidth, and, and really we're taking advantage of that. On the horizon are super fast satellite systems that will again transform how the industry operates. We have vessels that are three years old and they're going through full upgrades because technology's moved on around batteries and thrusters and computing power. Um, across the board, technology's moving so fast. Yeah. Yeah, you need to adapt yourselves all the time, obviously, and I guess your next model that comes out is different again than the, the, the previous one. Uh, and we see similar things uh, because we have been testing all sorts of systems and uh, over time you learn a lot. So it's, it, this is really game-changing game technology and uh, you need to realize that it's not, it's not uh, tested before. So, yeah, these two companies, uh, Fugro and XOcean, are really pushing the boundaries there on the technology side. And that means that you're learning very rapidly. So, um, so and, and you fail many times as well so uh, so you try things out 
Yeah, of course. Uh, you need to fail many times and then you learn very fast. And then, uh, and then you can work together as well to learn from each other. So that is also, I think, important now in this current day and age that you don't have to do everything yourself. You partner up, you actually learn from each other and then uh, you can move even faster. And that is, uh, I think, the, the advantage of companies that are agile enough to really do that and build partnerships uh, to uh, yeah, move that along quickly. You do hear a lot nowadays about data sharing, don't you? You know, the value of one group gathering the data and many maximizing its value. Yeah, and I think the uh, I, and I think one of the things we should look at is is that there are so many different data sets that can be collected here. It's a very very broad set of data, and and actually I don't think there's any really any one solution that can collect every type of data. So uh, so for example, we've done projects with with uh, with Thugro where you know we're collecting certain types of data that really suit a, an uncrewed platform, multiple USVs offshore, but we we can't physically interact with the seabed. There are there are data sets that we can't do from a vessel that's the size of a, a car. Um, and so I think that's where the collaboration needs to come in. Yeah, because there are limitations obviously to, uh, to certain technology. If you have a certain size, you cannot do everything. Uh, for instance, there's always a combination in, in the built environment where you collect geophysical data that uh, James is very much involved in, but you also need some geotechnical data and, and that's still not possible from these remote uh, platforms because uh, you need heavy equipment, uh, you need to really go into the seabed. And that, that requires a different kind of setup. So you need to combine data and integrating the data and the different sensors that you use is, uh, is really important there. I know you've always been very passionate about the integration of data as being a real game changer. Can you share more on that? Yeah, obviously, because you have to realize, and a lot of people don't understand that sometimes uh, so well, but if you only do geophysical data, then you don't have accurate enough information to actually uh, determine the subsurface completely. So if you put a turbine out there, a wind turbine, you really need to have on that particular location also a geotechnical uh, core and bring that to the laboratory, analyze that. So the combination of geophysics for the wider area and the larger area where James is talking about where you go out maybe with a swarm of, uh, of, of, of vessels where you collect quickly a lot of the subsurface information. What kind of soil parameters do you have? What kind of layers are there? Uh, is it sand? Is it clay? Are there any rocks? All these kind of things, or are there any bombs and gren grenades from, uh, from the World War II, for instance, because this is also a big problem there. And then you need to have the specific locations where you do the cores, the geotechnical cores, and combine these uh, things and uh, yeah, um, interpret the data together and then advise on that. Uh, that's, that's really important. That, there where you also can complement each other, where, where James can, uh, can help us and where we also have uh, joint projects together. And I think, I think one of the things that's, you know, one of the largest, I guess, consumers of ocean data these days is, is obviously offshore wind. And if you look at that industry in its own right, you're looking at a, an industry that needs data over, say, a 30-year lifespan for an individual project. You know, you've got three or four years of site investigation work before you get anywhere near construction. Right. Then you get two or three, or maybe a couple of years of data during construction, make sure foundations are installed in the right places, cables are secured. Then you move into 25 years of routine maintenance, you know, checking again that cables are secure, foundations are secure. And at the very end of which the industry is so young, there's very little of this, but there's decommissioning. And so you look at an industry there and what you're seeing is, you know, data sets that need to be built up over that whole 30 year lifespan. And a lot of these wind farms are built on quite transient areas where there's a lot of mobility of the seabed. So, under, you know, the integration of all of that data can give you a, a really good 
I guess, visualization of how that site is evolving over time so that the operator can then own and, and manage it. Absolutely, and I think this is a, this is perfect vision because that's the vision that we at Fugger also have. We, we play in the early stage business, also in the late stage business, in the operational phase where, where we do the inspections, uh, the maintenance, uh, uh, the measurements that are required during that operational phase, so to say, and if you connect the subsurface information and the layers that you have there, the geodata with them, the measurements that you do maybe uh, attached to the asset itself. Is there any subsidence? Is there any vibration? Is there any wind uh, influence or, or movement of, from the seabed, as you say? Then you really add the value. This is not happening enough. And it's interesting that you talk about decommissioning because even last year we were decommissioning the first wind farm here in the UK uh, that was actually, uh, I think, operational for 18 years or so, and uh, it was taken down. And you need to s scan the seabed, make sure there's nothing sta stays behind, and that everything is clean. So you get really through that whole life cycle of that asset uh, involved, indeed. I mean, if you take integration to an extreme, the, the wind farm owners could integrate backwards and collect their own data, surely. What's the argument for data collection companies playing this role? I mean, I think it's a, it's a very specialist data set that's required um, and, and as I say it's required over over multiple periods of time so so I think I think ultimately collection of this data it comes at a cost yeah. and and clearly there's a limitation of the budgets available to collect the data I think one of the visions that we should have as an industry is to say well why can't we collect more data for the budget that's available and more data over a bigger time period will give you more of those trends and more of that understanding of that site so I think reducing the price point of data is, is a key requirement in our industry. Yeah. And, and also the realization, I think, uh, if the ultimate clients realize that if they collect a little bit more data, they will end up having less problems during the installation work, during the operational phase of the project. And, and compared to what they invest in this whole field, if they develop a wind farm, I think it's, it's peanuts uh, in what we, uh, we collect, uh, James and, and Fugro uh, with X-Ocean and Fugro itself. That, that is very minimal compared to the bigger scheme of the investments. And then you're much wiser actually to collect a little bit more upfront and have more details there. I don't know what it is. It's something about the human nature, how we're prepared to take these risks when we can minimize them, can't we? Yeah, and look, ultimately, decisions in the ocean need to be made based on good, solid data. If, if we've got good data, then we can make sure we can avoid making mistakes. Um, and they could be you know, physical mistakes, but they can also be environmental mistakes. And, and if, we can, if we can collect that body of data up front, we can make good decisions. And then I think the post-installation monitoring, understanding how the built environment is operating, absolutely critical. And, and the technology's there. And I think one of the things that I would also say when we look at sort of innovation in our sector, I think we have to say that also the sensor technology um, is just improving wow, hand over fist. And you know, we're seeing you know, new systems coming online constantly that are pushing the boundary of the types of data, the quality of data that could be collected. And, and you know, we, we applaud that. Do we have examples that you could share maybe from each company which just exemplify this value that the client gets as a consequence of that early investment in data? Uh, yeah, so I was going to say that the, I, I think ultimately it's really about making those decisions that de-risk a project. Right. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if, for example, for a cable route, if, if, a, if a sensible route is identified up front, 
cable is then installed in a secure way, then you know the, the chances of there being an issue with that cable are minimized over time. But if, if I guess there, there are less data available and the installation isn't, isn't, isn't going correctly, then that can lead to a large amount of cost both during the installation and also in the maintenance period afterwards. So it really understanding the environment upfront is just critical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there are so many examples, John. Uh, obviously, we work for many clients, and James as well, where, where we see uh, the value of the data that, uh, that we collect and analyze and so on. And, and if you look at the technology now, we, we're, we're really trying out also with, with sensors that can be yeah, deployed from these uh, uncrewed platforms as well. And uh, we, we actually have a sample here uh, at, at the venue, uh, here along, uh, along the venue in the water. Where, where an ROV is actually specifically designed to operate from the uncrewed platform. It seals out, it can do inspection deeper in the water, from uh, inspection from uh, assets, uh, so to say, a platform or a wind, uh, wind pile. Uh, and that is really interesting because now you don't have any people out there in the, ha in the hazardous environment. You don't have to fly people in. You, you operate from a significantly smaller asset. You reduce the CO2 emissions probably by more than 95%. Uh, you were talking of even higher numbers. And if you take on board also the, yeah, the people that need to fly in, the safety elements of it, uh, also the clients that don't have to be on board and actually can follow what is happening in their office remotely. Uh, it is, uh, it's incredible what, what, it's, uh, what is possible now, nowadays, yeah. If we look back, I know from Fugro's perspective, we've invested in several remote operational centers, and, and those sort of investments are massive, aren't they? And it takes vision to do that many, many years ago. Are, are we, I mean, was it a no-brainer to make these, take these steps, or, or, or were they difficult? Because looking back, it, it seems like a no-brainer, certainly after the pandemic and everything, but take us just, if you could go back in time, how you were thinking then and how you came forward. In actual fact, for me, it is quite logical, but I, I pedaled back probably 15 years uh, uh, and I, I still recall that I was sitting on, on my couch uh, at home thinking about, okay, what is the future? And at the time I was operations manager and I had to deal with many people that were not available in the market to actually go offshore and do the work for us. So I thought if I can standardize and automate some of these things, and I don't have to send people offshore. This was 2005, mind you. And then I started uh, proposing to the Fugler board at the time, should we not um, build and develop a automated navigation system? And it, this was still simple, like doing the navigation remotely. And uh, I probably was 15, 15 years too early with my thoughts, but it took... What, what was their reaction? And we were really... <laughs> no, they gave us actually the go-ahead and we tried to actually develop something. And the early stage, the technology and the satellite communication and so on wasn't really there yet to uh, make the game-changing move. But now you see 15 years later, and it can actually uh, go, go in that direction. And, and a very similar thing, by the way, happened a few times in uh, Fugro because if you look at, for instance, the drones that we have in the air, and this, this, this is simply a drone on the water at, at the moment, but if you look at the drones in the air, early 2000, Fugro was shooting these, uh, these planes uh, in, into the air, uncrewed as well, to collect data uh, from, from the land environment. And we were doing this together with Boeing or a company that's now bought by Boeing. And we dropped it completely because regulations were not up to speed yet. We couldn't really operate these things uh, remotely. And then we had to push it out. And now obviously 20 years later, everybody has a drone and flying around. And the same is obviously applicable now with USVs, with the uncrewed platforms on the water. 
albeit now we have learned from the past and we move much faster on the regulation side uh, and that is really interesting. Mm. I mean this the big cultural changes that you alluded to there I mean this this all helps the gender balance um, topic doesn't it? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when you look at the, the, the sort of, the, at an IMO level, if you look at the, the gender balance in the, in the seafarer world, it's, it's just appalling. I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's in the one or two percent range, and of which most of that is in the cruise industry. So, you know, really it's an industry that it, it, things need to change. Um, one of, we have a series of impact objectives in our business that focus on everything from sort of climate change, developing offshore wind, but one of them is around gender balance, where we aim to operate way above the, the level that the IMO have a standard. We're, we're, we're over 10 times higher in terms of our gender balance than the IMO standard. And, and I think that, that can only be put down to the fact that we can offer a work environment to our team that doesn't mean you need to go offshore for days, weeks, months or, yeah. or years. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that transforms everything. And we, 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 we're growing really fast. So we, we, we grew over the pandemic from 40 people to 130 people today. We're recruiting another 100 people now Every couple of weeks I sit down with our new joiners. Um, it's one of my favorite meetings. It's a sort of a, a welcome on board, virtual coffee meeting. And, uh, um, and the stories you hear from people around how, just how much it can change their life by not having to go away. They're, they're you know, dads with young families. And, and these, things are, these things are really emotional. And, uh, and it's just fantastic to see that you can offer that, I guess, that alternate way. You can still be a mariner, you can still be a surveyor, but you can do it that fits within your work life. And you can bring in different kind of people as well, so they don't have to be out there in the beginning, in their first years, after, after university, after school, they can join us and, and actually get into this remote operation type of uh, services where they did not really build up the offshore experience because this is not really what is required. Obviously, you still need some people that understand what it is to be out there and what wave height uh, can, can do to your vessel and all these kind of things, so uh, that's also important. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there, though, who see what's happening to the world, recognize that what we do in companies like these can make a very big difference, want to engage, and these changes allow it to be possible. They don't have to go to sea for three months, do they? Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah, that is that is what we see as well. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think it, you know, I, and I'm sure Marcus, absolutely the same for you. You know, when, when you start your career and you start international travel, it, it's fantastic for the first few years when you're going to different countries and experiencing different cultures. But you know, there gets a time in your life where you start going that starts to get a little bit boring and a bit tiresome. So I think you know we see that a lot with mariners that have spent a number of years at sea, mm. surveyors that have spent a number of years at sea. But it's just got to that time in their life where they're going, well, they either have to give up being a mariner or surveyor or find another way to exercise that uh, that uh, that career path yeah. and I think remote provides that opportunity and I think you know we're not the only people that are that are that are pushing this and I think it's a it's a great thing for people yeah and you see that obviously over time over the last uh, decades we lost a lot of people that left the industry because they didn't feel comfortable going offshore again but the future of um, yeah working with people in companies is actually also to be much more uh, aligned with the phase of life they go through so uh, and that's what you're describing uh, so if they want to build a family they want to be a bit more at home men and female obviously uh, both applicable there and then and then you can accommodate that as well so the, it becomes a more interesting uh, uh, industry in that sense as well and with the blue economy coming in as well with oceans and the ocean decade the focus on the oceans uh, in general in the world is uh, really pushing also into the environment where people really believe okay this is something good that we do here because yeah the oceans determine 
as you described in your introduction, uh, the weather patterns in, in the world and uh, what is happening with the climate and all these kind of things. So it's very Im important and very interesting for the younger generations as well. I say one of the things that uh, that's also talked about when you talk about sort of you know, remote systems, automation is, is that, you know, what does that mean in terms of job opportunities for people? And certainly I think we would see that it's actually a huge positive. So certainly in our company, and I'm sure in yours as well, Mark, you know, we're going through tremendous growth, tremendous recruiting to bring in skills, and they can be everything from computing skills, but mariner skills, uh, surveyor skills. So I think, you know, the ocean economy is growing, the need for data is growing, and that's creating more job employment. Um, but it's creating it in a different way. It's creating it from not being at the front line on a vessel. You can create different opportunities for people, and I think that's really important. And we still have a challenge, by the way, because... Tell us about it. No, but because there's more data required. So yeah, we need yeah. a lot more people, even remote people, uh, that actually want to join this industry, want to play a role there and make the difference. Because, uh, yeah, clients ask for more data. We want to understand much better how the planet is formed, how it's shaped, what is happening, how it's moving, how it, uh, yeah, our planet Earth is really a dynamic sphere. It's moving all the time. So you have to continuously measure and adapt and uh, change it. Is it a challenge? also to get that message out there to people that this is a space or is it easy for people to recognize this space where people can both achieve a really valuable purpose in their life in their career um, and, and work. I, I would say that I think there's a lot of things happening about the blue economy and, and the ocean economy and, and people are really, really focused on it now. And so I think, you know, every, everything from Blue Planet to, you know, to the sort of shows like this really, really inspire people. So I would hope that people are paying more and more attention to the opportunities that the ocean economy presents. But also, it's kind of important that we're bringing cool technology, cool ways of working to people to make them inspired and make them want to get involved in this industry so i would hope that there's a bit of a groundswell around the importance of the ocean and the opportunities i think it is also what you have seen over the last couple of years obviously the big technical uh, technical companies like the googles and the microsofts and so on, they obviously attracted a lot of people but now yeah, this environment, this industry is also moving into this direction where data is really important, where you can have these flashy and new solutions and techno uh, technological solutions. So that's really also appealing to people that used to actually only interested in maybe in the Googles and the Apples of this world. Now they actually come to, uh, to the, this industry. So I think it becomes much more attractive and interesting uh, as well. Towards the beginning of this podcast, you both mentioned um, collaboration events when we were working together on this or that I just wonder if you could maybe share some examples or go deeper on that topic because I'm I can't help thinking we're facing big global challenges way beyond the capabilities of anyone in company and whilst I respect and, uh, and understand the need for competitive um, um, distance and all the rest of it uh, there must be more we can do if we act together. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right there. Look, ultimately, it's a huge ocean, yeah. and there's a huge amount of data required, and not, not one party is going to be able to deliver all of that data across all the different types of data set required. So, so I think, you know, certainly, certainly from our business, um, I, I, I've lost count of the number of projects that we've performed with other industry parties where there's a, there's a scope that we can deliver, and we can deliver it really efficiently with low uh, health and safety risks because we've no offshore, low carbon emissions. 
but we can't do the whole scope. So in that case, that's where partnering with people such as Fubro, really, really important for us to be able to deliver that full scope to the client. Yeah, and I think, I think what James is describing there, he's really efficient with his company to collect geodata in a certain area, a certain way, and we can complement that with uh, yeah, the other services that are required in this field. So working together is probably, in general, the way to uh, do business in future uh, with partners there to move faster. If you, if you really work well together, then you can move faster as well. You can learn from each other, as I said earlier, and then you uh, really speed up. And that is, I think, the way to do it. Uh, and, and sometimes that works really well for a couple of years and then maybe you separate ways again. Uh, there might be some, uh, some uh, um, yeah, competition in certain areas, but that's not the problem. You can still work together in many other areas. So I think uh, people need to be yeah, flexible enough to, uh, to have uh, a transparent and open uh, view uh, towards uh, this way. My, my, my read actually very much in this industry is, is that actually people are very mature yeah. around this. There are times when you're competing with people for a piece of work and there are times when you're collaborating on another piece of work. And I think, I think we all need to, need to be grown up and mature yes. about that and, and, and find where the right fit is for the right project. So, yeah. and, and, and you also see, just to respond to that, uh, you see that the projects become bigger. So if you look at the new industry like the offshore wind environment, they are so large, the projects and the requests out there. There's not enough equipment, not enough people to serve this market. So by doing it more remotely uh, and, and having uncrewed platforms out there and also working well together, you can actually serve uh, your clients better as well. So working well together is probably a must if you want to serve uh, the, uh, yeah, the future. Very good. So we have some supplementaries here from Bernadette. Around business growth, difficulties of going from tens of employees to hundreds. James? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're a business that's going through very fast growth. So during, uh, during the, the two years of COVID, we, we tripled our revenue in the first year and we tripled our revenue again in the second year. And that came with obviously having to increase the headcount and, and actually the number of assets we had in the business. So, so we, we had tremendous growth during the, the last two years. Um, I think we're lucky because what we're doing it is new and it is innovative so therefore it does attract people to see what we're doing and so so from that point of view we're finding that the the recruiting of i guess the the seafarer skills and the surveyor skills has actually been really positive for us but when we look at general skills so project managers accountants there's just a there's just a huge challenge in in the global economy for skills um, and then we're competing with every other industry for those yeah, and I think that's logical. You see, if you have a fast-growing business, then uh, yeah, you bump into these uh, these uh, difficulties. It's growing pains, uh, so to say. Um, and I think in a similar way, we have that as well in certain pockets of the uh, of the company. Obviously, over the last couple of years, I think the industry was really suffering from uh, from uh, yeah a downturn and uh, and a crisis in energy. And during COVID, uh, it was difficult for a larger company like Fugro as well, like many companies. And I think we've gone through uh, quite quite well. But, but having more companies looking in this new space, so to say, it also attracts and interests more people. So it probably helps both companies that, uh, that people actually see what is possible on the technology side and the data side. And then um, uh, I think uh, we, we probably support each other by simply making this attractive uh, by, by introducing new technology and new ways of working. So I, I see that as a positive thing. Obviously, I do recognize that XOcean uh, has a challenge uh, building a company and, and a more robust environment, obviously, that has all the procedures for the standard uh, things that you need to have in a company. Fugro has its own uh, difficulties, obviously, because there's more competition and uh, there's, uh, there's other people that are attractive, uh, like a fast-growing XOcean, for instance, 
but uh, at the same time I think it also interests more uh, a larger group so to say and uh, it brings it more uh, more awareness in the market that this is uh, interesting uh, areas to work in yeah and I think and I think that 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 point Mark that you're making is really really key is that if what we're doing is interesting and is stimulating people then just more people in general are going to want to come into this industry and that's good for everybody and you know we need to make this a place where people want to create their careers and have an amazing time very good. So I'm, I'm interested in, in your earlier comment, James, about vessels producing one thousandth of the emissions. How do you do that? So our, our system is a hybrid powered system. So we have a lithium ion battery, we have a solar array on the deck, and we also then have a small diesel generator on board. So, so we, we measure the amount of, of fuel that we use in single digits of liters a day for 24 hours. So it's a tiny, tiny amount of, uh, tiny amount of emissions. Um, and actually we did a calculation. So uh, we looked at how many hours we operated last year and it was, you know, it was in around the 17,000 hours of operation. We would have offset the, the, the emission of around 22,000 tonnes of CO2 through using a, a much smaller package compared to a, to a larger vessel. Um, when you look at the actual energy equation, we're running our vessel on the, on the same amount of power it takes to boil a kettle. Um, so it's just minuscule amounts of energy, but that's because the package is very small. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, obviously we, we sail with a large, larger uh, use fees. Um, and they have a little bit larger engine, but we also have a hybrid system, so we're battery powered uh, uh, as well as diesel powered. What, what you see there is we, we talk about a 95% reduction of CO2 compared to the larger uh, operations that we do with larger vessels. So that's enormous uh, reduction there. Uh, obviously, on, on our traditional vessels, there's a big challenge out there in the world to really get to a cleaner uh, yeah, a propul propulsion. And, what we're doing there is actually we're now testing a, a methanol a fuel uh, to, uh, to really burn significantly less uh, uh, fuel and or burn more fuel probably but a less uh, CO2 emission uh, and that can go into the, the standard uh, engines so, uh, so we're actually doing a trial in the upcoming year and then uh, collect data for probably one to two years. It's also a subsidized program in the Netherlands uh, at the moment sponsored by the government. It's a consortium of companies and Fugro has their first vessel in there and will be the first pilot vessel, the Fugro Pioneer. And that will be super exciting because we believe in this size of vessel and the way we operate that methanol is the way to go. And there's several other companies also looking at that. Uh, but this is, uh, this is one of the, the, the key things. And it's already to a level where you can really start uh, introducing it. And if it works well, then we can actually transform our other vessels as well. And complement it with hybrid systems as well. We're moving from pandemic to, to this new reality of war. Um, how has technology supported our efforts to remain useful and cope with these macroeconomic uh, shocks? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the one thing I think that we would probably all see is that energy is a crucial uh, requirement um, and, and where we get our energy from is, is really important. Um, when we look at sectors such as offshore wind, you know, they're not only bringing carbon and, and environmental savings, but they're also, they're also providing security of energy supply. There's no fuel required for an offshore wind farm. So I think what, personally, I think what we're going to see is more focus on developing renewables, which, which allow us to be more independent in terms of our energy supplies. And so I would expect that industry to accelerate further still. Yeah, I, I, I'm very much in agreement because what we see there is there, there's two 
key trends in the world that actually uh, push this industry to, uh, to develop even faster. And that is the energy transition, as you describe, uh, where it's moving towards wind. But now, obviously, with Ukraine uh, war coming in, people are now talking about oil and gas again as well, which is kind of logical. On the other hand, I would say, well, let's get coal out, out of the way, then reduce petroleum, and then really move into gas as a transition fuel. But, but this was yeah, impossible to talk about if you talk uh, maybe one, one year ago, but now with the, with the war uh, on the table, uh, everybody's open again uh, to talk about further development of, of gas fields, for instance, in particular, but even oil is, uh, is coming back there as well. So this, this is really pushing on, on the oil and gas side, more the traditional uh, energies form. But then uh, wind, they also talk about how can we further speed up the, uh, yeah, the development of wind parks. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a big demand from governments uh, around Europe and also in the US, obviously, and Asia Pacific, where they say, okay, how can we be less dependent on, uh, on certain countries delivering the traditional energy sources. So, so let's move, move faster, speed up, which is very difficult because there's not a lot, a lot of assets, resources, uh, and people to actually do it. So this is really pushing it. And then at the same time, with the efforts on the ocean decade and the focus on yeah, the climate change in the world, there's an enormous push to understand a lot better what is happening out there and in the oceans. Uh, so these are two trends, according to me, that are really pushing the boundaries on our side. I mean, there's an immediate shock, isn't there? I think I read a, a statistic somewhere that a lot of the mariners of this world are Ukrainian or Russian. I mean, this is going to impact. Somebody told me that 10% uh, uh, or 15% even of the total seafarers, uh, group of seafarers is coming out of Russia. So if they, they are not able to, uh, to actually travel anymore, we will have uh, close to 10,000 vessels uh, uh, on standby worldwide so this is amazing and uh, obviously a lot of first officers captains are actually coming out of these areas so this is a big problem at the moment i think they're still utilized reasonably okay but this is going to be a problem in the upcoming uh, months and uh, and years for sure now as we're coming to the end let's let's look to the future and i'm i'm you know, what is beyond the current technology? What will the next disruptor be? I'm asking you for your vision, basically. You know, there's just so little we still know about the ocean. Uh, I mean, we, 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 know, we know nearly nothing about it. And I think, I think we're going to see huge transformations in sensor technology, being able to really get detailed insights into the ocean. I think we're going to see a lot more in terms of remote monitoring. Um, and I think there's a lot of enabling technologies that we touched on earlier, but, 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 but are going to come to things like hydrogen fuel cells that can keep, keep survey systems running for, for, you know, for days, weeks, months, years collecting data. So uh, to me, it's around just a transformation in terms of our knowledge of our oceans. You mentioned earlier the rate of change is faster and faster. I think they call that acceleration, don't they? Which is quite difficult to keep pace with, really, isn't it? But um, can you imagine that rate carrying on like that? Is it just going to be incrementally faster and faster to the point where human beings give up in the thinking process? Well, I believe that there will be uh, a lot more connected in the future. So uh, we will have so many more sensors out there that are connected, as, as James says, uh, so much more. Uh, um, really intelligent sensors embedded into buildings, into structures that will continuously monitor what is happening there. And as the world is continuously changing and dynamic uh, sphere, you will have a real-time 
a picture of what, what is happening out there. And I've, I also believe that we will have a digital twin of, of, of the planet uh, and not only service but subservice as well. And that is my dream that you have a yeah, 3D environment, digital twin from the oceans going not only to the ocean floor but going into the ocean floor and uh, water column and then above uh, into uh, space as well. So you will have a complete model of, of, of planet Earth and then also real time start to measure all the time uh, every second so to say what is happening and how it's moving and how dynamic it is and then you can predict climate much better then you can predict what kind of weather is coming in you can predict disasters so so that will be super exciting i think we will have a lot more intelligence all based on geodata collecting analyzing and advising on geodata and beyond planet earth can we imagine this happening in mars Mars is maybe uh, one step uh, beyond, but uh, we have seen that the first geotechnical boring was done or sample was taken on, on the moon. So, uh, so the, these things will continue as well. We obviously will continue to explore because that's the nature of a human being. We are curious and we want to go out there and, uh, and find out more. Very good. Well, let us round it off by, as I always do, saying be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, John and James. Thank you. Thank it was you. a pleasure.